In this series of podcasts, we discuss the transforming work of God, who is uncreated being, upon our souls as limited, created being. We discover how His Word reveals the truth of the union of His Spirit with our Spirit through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. This transformation of our lives is not just about a change from bad to good. It's about a shift from natural to spiritual, from old creation to new creation. I'm Scott Kardash and I'm here with Paul O'Sullivan and today we're going to talk about commandment number six, following on from commandment number five last week. How are you, Paul? going well. Hi, Scott. Paul, I'll just read this commandment. It's not going to take long. You shall not kill, Exodus 20, verse 13. Very short commandment. Um, If we translated that a different way to say, don't kill, that would in fact be the probably the shortest verse in the English Bible, wouldn't it? Actually, Jesus wept. Yeah. That's got more letters than don't kill. It's probably, it it actually, yeah, by one letter, it beats don't steal. (laughs) (laughs) As far as the commandments are concerned. (laughs) So it's it's very direct, but um, wouldn't you say there's more to this commandment than simply not killing someone? Yes. This commandment speaks about more than just the act of taking of life in general. It's concerned as much, if not more, with the hard attitude behind that, the attitude of malice, which can start with something as normal, if you like, as frustration. Things aren't working your way with another person. That can turn into resentment against a person. And then there comes the idea of payback or vengeance, which can allow hatred or some other hurtful kind of an intention bring actual harm to another person. What it certainly brings is harm to the relationship, Mm. if not some kind of violent act. So that's on the negative side. But there's always the redemptive process of God on the positive side to transform us, like all the commandments. And that's why, as before, Jesus takes a commandment and brings it into the, the New Testament in the sense that he enlarges on that commandment in teaching people about attitudes of caring for one another. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he brings this commandment up and he says it has been written in the law or in the commandment, you shall not kill and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause will be in danger of the judgment. So there he's bringing in anger. Therefore, If you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus packs a lot into one commandment, which we've just said is the shortest commandment, one of the shortest scriptures. It's quite an expansion. Bring it down. It It is, but but look, look what it's got. Look what it involves. It's in the context of people getting offended and angry, and that kills relationships. And then Jesus talks about the remedy for that is this process of forgiveness and reconciliation. So in that scripture that I just read, Jesus is now interpreting the spirit of the sixth commandment, and he takes its meaning beyond just the taking of life, brings it into the area of emotional control. And that concerns our feelings towards other people generally. And we all have feelings. And the feelings can be caring and loving, or they can be negative and malicious or harmful. Just say harmful. But the two main thoughts that Jesus brings up in that scripture are malice on the one hand and reconciliation on the other. Mm. So this commandment's all about relationships. It says, literally, it says, do not kill. But it's, for us, it's do not kill relationships. And if we're in that yes. situation, how do we deal with that? And, yes. and, and that's what's important. That's what we're going to talk about today. In fact, I would say that this commandment is really, it's the guts of relationships with one another. Mm. This covers everything that would lead us either into being at peace with one another mm. or being at war with one another. Mm. This one commandment. And we know where it comes from, from Commandment 5. 
and, and it's going in, a, in another direction as we go on. But right now, it deals with every aspect of not being in control emotionally with how we value another person's feelings, another person's life, and how we have respect to that. So this contains it all. So the transformational nature of this commandment is really around forgiveness and reconciliation, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And it also talks about bringing your gift to the altar. So it looks like it involves an attitude towards God as well. So not just other people, but also God. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? Jesus talks about people, and then all of a sudden he brings the altar into it. Mm, which is not mentioned at all no, in the original commandment. Not in the original commandment. So you've mentioned that transformational pattern. That's correct. We've got forgiveness and reconciliation becomes the outcome instead of malice and, and vengeance and offence. Those two, reconciliation and forgiveness, they're only two out of the three in the transformational process, actually, because Jesus mentions the other one later, which goes up just beyond, well, let's get to zero. Let's get back to talking to one another. Let's get reconciled. Let's be forgiven. Yeah, well, that's sort of coming from minus five to zero. But then how do you get to plus five or plus one even? And he starts to talk about having care and compassion, which is the full transformation. Mm. So we'll have a look at that later. Okay. But when you mention the altar, it's just so typical how Jesus always relates things back to God as being in the centre, right in the centre of every issue. And so in the, in the issue of anger and forgiveness, God brings himself right into the centre of this issue because he is the one that forgives. And the altar speaks of the altar of sacrifice, which is where forgiveness happened, which was central throughout the Old Testament. All the sacrifices were offered. People committed sins and they brought sacrifices, certain sacrifices for certain degrees of sins. So Jesus is conscious of the fact that, yeah, there is offence, there is sinfulness, and there is forgiveness for that. And that was the whole Old Testament lifestyle for the children of Israel. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine every day you'd hear animals being slaughtered, you'd see blood all over the sand, and you'd feel... Yeah, well, I've offended God, but oh, hang on, yeah, it's all getting sorted out. We're killing the animals. God's satisfied. That would become your consciousness. There's constant forgiveness and reconciliation happening, if you know what I mean. Mm. And God wants us to know that's there all the time. We don't see it visibly now, but by jingoes, we can certainly know it on the inside. Mm. But, and that's why Jesus in the New Testament became the sacrifice for our sins for all time. So it had to involve the laying down of life. And that's another issue, of laying down your life. But God alone, I would say, has plumbed the depth of forgiveness of sins and offences. It is so comprehensive how God plumbs the depths of this. It, it, seems, it seems hard for us to fathom. To understand the nature of the forgiveness of God, we just think, no, that's unforgivable. Because mm. we, we have trouble <laughs> forgiving ourselves. Exactly right. And that's what haunts us. That's what makes relationships difficult, guilt and shame. But there are so many scriptures in the Bible about Jesus says, like, I'll put your sins as far away from one another as the east is to the west. Although your, your sins were as crimson, they'll now be made white as snow. He also says, I'll remember your sins no more. That's in the new covenant. Mm. So he puts himself smack in the middle of forgiveness and reconciliation because that's why he came, mm. to get a relationship back on track. Sixth commandment, relationships. Well, what's the killing here? Well, the killing is the sacrifice of life, once animals, now Jesus' life. Wow. Mm. That's certainly putting God in the, in the centre of it, isn't it? Even the last thing he said on the cross was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's forgiveness. So if we're going to be reconcilers, if we're going to obey this or at least fall into line, align ourselves with what Jesus said about go to the altar and, um, and get reconciled, that means that we need to build in with it, into us a respect for seeing relationships built up and not destroyed. That becomes a value for us. 
We get it from God and we get it taught to us. We like to see it modelled in people and then we can start to live it because a reconciler becomes inclusive to other people. This is how parents can train their children. And they devote themselves to establishing and maintaining and restoring relationships. It's like I was saying before, this commandment, number six, is the workshop of relationships. So let's look at those things. So you're a reconciler. You want to build up and not destroy relationships. You want to be inclusive to people. So you need to establish relationships. This is something that we can begin to value more. And that's simply having an attitude of acceptance towards other people. We, first of all, like you said before, we find it hard to forgive ourselves. We need to also try and work out how to accept ourselves honestly as people that are imperfect and not say, well, no, no, I never, I never get anything wrong. Or if we do get something wrong, it wasn't my fault, it was his fault. No, let's accept ourselves honestly and see that we make mistakes and we sometimes willfully <laughs> make mistakes. Knowing that we can accept ourselves as we are, then know that we're accepted by God in that. That's revolutionary. So then we can start to accept others as they are. So a lot of people base their acceptance of others on whether they have the same point of view, the same opinion, same political party, same religion. You know, I mean, this is tribalism. We can't accept them. They're too different to us. But we were accepted by God when we were in opposition to God. The Bible says when we were enemies of God, <laughs> we were hostile to God and we didn't believe in him. God accepted us. And that's precisely what the ministry of reconciliation of Jesus was towards us. I'm not saying that God condones the bad behaviour, but he accepts that person because he wants to get them, redeem them and change them. Where does he find them? In a place of imperfection and sin, right? Jesus had the ministry of reconciliation. So when he walked the earth, it wasn't only on the cross. The cross was the final act of a reconciliation because he died. But when he walked the earth, he was always reconciling people. He didn't reject the people that he was talking to because they were sinners. And they're all sinners. Mm. And, he, and he used to tell them that. And they're imperfect. But he didn't reject them because he became one of us in order to make us one with him. So he had to take us as we were. And then he himself, who didn't sin, was able to make us one with him. Now, that is what reconciliation is. It's more than just let's be mates. It is a process. It is one of the deepest metaphysical, philosophical, spiritual dynamics in the scripture concerning salvation. Mm. I would like to unpack it a little bit. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, he was accepting them. I'm not saying condoning their behaviour, accepting them. So there's your first attitude. Take parents and kids. You don't reject your kids and say, well, you can go and live somewhere else. I don't like your behaviour. You accept them. Then you try and sort out their behaviour, which is a lovely process. <laughs> so it says he accepts them, reconciles them, and he's committed to us, it says, this message of reconciliation. We landed with it. I'll read it to you in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, after a person knows that, first of all, they've got to hear it. They're hearing what's called the good news. That's the gospel. The bad news is we were enemies, hostile. The good news is he's made us reconciled. So we were accepted. The Bible says that in, in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been accepted in the beloved. So now what can happen which is what we're doing the commandments for, transformation can now take place. We're on that ground, the soil of acceptance and forgiveness. We need to acknowledge that. We need to be grateful to that and say, well, 
Lord, can you change me? Yes, I can. So what we do then, once that ground has been laid and the transformation can take place and we willingly enter into that by trust and faith, we start to experience salvation. That is the experience then of continually being saved, made whole. And that's the flow of God's life within us. It's the living water. It begins to flow. Salvation is not simply destination heaven one day. That's what a lot of Christians think. Yeah. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And now hang on. What's your experience, your effective relational partnership now every day with God that you're responding to him in for what he's done for you? If, if you're experiencing something that's lifting you up above being unhappy and cranky and miserable with your life, you're experiencing salvation. So know? our life with him starts now, not when we die and go to heaven, which is, and heaven's really just a waiting room anyway, <laughs> but a new heaven and a new earth. That's good. So, yeah. So, and I think that there's two, two types of people that might be resistant to the gospel message. And one might be people who think, oh, I'm too sinful, you know, God could never forgive me for what I've done. And those people really are the, I think, are the ideal candidates to hear the gospel message and hear the reconciliation is available to them and the forgiveness that's available to them. But then there's another category of people that I think are even more resistant, which are those who think, well, I'm a good person. Those type of people don't actually need a saviour. That's good, yeah. 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 So, so they're, they're, they're two different stumbling blocks, aren't they? Yeah. Different, different yeah. stumbling blocks. Yeah. Different types of people. Yeah. But in the Bible, you know, Jesus actually went to those people who were the sinners and the people yeah, who thought right. they probably yes. were too wicked, if you like. That's right. To to know God, and he reached out to those people. He did it in front of the others. Remember mm. the mm. woman who was caught in adultery, mm. and he forgives her. She can't believe it, but he saw something there. Whatever the circumstances of, of her sin was, he saw what, whatever pressure she'd been under, I don't know. But there were guys there stoning her that knew in their hearts what was going on. And he said to them, yeah, if any of you with, without sin, and he's talking about this kind of sin, you can cast the first stone and Then they, they had disappear. to look at themselves. They, that's it. And that's being honest with but, yourself. But prior to that, they weren't looking at themselves. They, they were. They thought, we're good people. She's a bad person. And that's right. She deserves to be stoned. So that illustrates your point. Yeah. That's the yeah. two different times. Now, what she did, she accepted the forgiveness. And then Jesus said to her, now don't sin anymore. So he could say that then. But if he would have marched in and seen them stoning and said, look, I'll handle this and, them and just wagged his finger at her and says, no, don't you sin anymore. Probably would have stoned him. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But you can see his heart of reconciliation there. Mm. And so, yeah, that's good. Oh, there's a scripture in Romans chapter 5, actually, that sums up some of this very well. In verse 8, it says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we will be saved by his life. See, now that's salvation. That's the best scripture for salvation. Mm. Reconciled by his death, saved by his life. Mm. So you start to get the process. Now, billions have been reconciled by his death and forgiveness. But how many are being saved by his life? You know, it'd be interesting to do the sums. And I'm talking about churchgoers even who have been reconciled, there, there are ones that are say, got the message and they say, yes, I've been reconciled. I've been made one with the Lord. I'm now being saved by his life. I'm now responding to that love. I'm now trusting it. And I'm sharing life together as one with him. And God's got this new mathematical formula. One and one make one, right? We now become one with him. Now, I, I want to just also talk about that word reconciled. Now, the word in the Greek is kata lasso, K-A-T-A lasso. And it means a mutual exchange of two things that become another thing. You've heard of the word a catalyst, right? Mm -hmm. And you put two elements together and you add an, you add a, an ingredient or a, a temperature or something, and then the equals something else. So the process of God with us is this mutual change and 
I'm saying something here that might sound controversial, but God actually changed by becoming human. He was always uncreated being. Mm. In fact, that's the name of this mm. podcast. Mm. He was uncreated. I'm actually talking about the issue of why I call this podcast uncreated. And then he became created being in Jesus. Now that's big. Mm. So forever. I'm, forever. Yeah. So God is now a human being. A man being, forever. A man forever in heaven. Mm. So uncreated became created. And that was a change from God to do. He did that by becoming human. So part of the equation is God as human plus human plus the, if you like, the magic potion of reconciliation. Something from heaven hits the fact that Jesus becomes human and gives his life for us as humanity. So humanity then becomes Jesus. Instead of we are now defined by the first man born, the first Adam, we are now defined by the second Adam, Jesus. And that's what the Bible calls him, the last Adam or the second Adam. So now when God looks down, he's looking for the new creation people. They're everywhere, but you need to know this by faith, that that's the equation. You've been catalyzed. You are now changed and you are a new creation. And, it, and the Bible actually says that we are joined with God. We're joined, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Mm. So we're joined to him. And there's a process that's a mystery. Mm. It's the only thing he could have done. So I mean, he had to die to finish it off and then rise again, of course, and take us with him. Mm. So, yeah, that's a big word. Paul, we saw that the attitudes of relationship and commandment five are about trust and care. So that seems to be tied in very closely with this commandment, doesn't it? So is this where the link is between commandment five and commandment six? Yes. We saw that commandment five was about relationship with authority. And the problem with people was the inability to trust another person. So yeah, what you said is correct. Um, that other person or other people, really, the parents, the first ones that they meet, they were there to influence or to direct that life. And that had to be responded to in order for that new person on the planet to understand the nature of authority. Somebody that knows more than you do, that cares for you, and that's going to help you to grow into the person you're supposed to be. But built into us, this is the first Adam we're talking about. There's still Adam in us. Before Jesus, we were all part of Adam. We we're all there hostile to God. So a lot of people think, well, Jesus came, died on the cross, therefore he changed the Father's heart. Now God loves us. No, no, no. Jesus didn't change the Father's heart. The Father sent Jesus to do that very thing. That was his heart. What Jesus did was change humanity. He didn't change God. He only changed God in the sense that he became one of us. He came down into the mud and he changed humanity. That attitude is very common amongst Christians, isn't it, where... People think that the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. Yeah, I know. The very common um, it belief. Is common, yeah. yeah. And we can see that some pretty tough things happen in the Old Testament. The very good reason for that, we can talk about mm. that at another time. I think we have in some parts, but the fact is now Jesus is doing this big thing and he's, he's drawing commandment number five into commandment number six because there's now this person that's going to influence and direct a person's life as with parents and children and they're either going to respond to that or resist it just like the old adam has always been resisting it now we've got a new creation who is able to respond but why does the old adam in us the old creation in us find it difficult <laughs> to be the new person well they're different people in the sense it's like there's the old nature and the new nature. There's the old creation and the new creation, and they're always in conflict. The Bible says that the spirit desires against the human nature in us, and, and, and the, the two things, one's always going to win. Mm. All right? It's a matter of what we choose. What is it that's in us? It's self-determination. It's that self thing. So we can have our own way. And now let's look how this, this becomes a problem relationally. We want our own way. We don't trust that this person is going to give us everything that we want. We might be true. Maybe they're not going to give us everything that we want, but they want to give us the best thing generally. And so we start to mistrust that person in authority. Now we get into commandment number six and we start to mistrust people generally. 
because we still want our own way, still determined to have our own way, and we'll behave in a way that tells other people they've got to do what we want. Somewhere there's going to be trouble and anger and frustration and resentment, all the things I mentioned before. And a person starts to act out that angry nature. And it can be because they're getting blocked by a person because they can't get their own way. It can also be that there's a person that makes them feel bad. They make them feel guilty or feel ashamed uh, or feel inadequate. And some people make you feel that. I mean, I can feel inadequate when I'm with somebody who is an absolute tremendous performer and I'm thinking, well, do I have to perform like that? Mm. And I feel inadequate. And I can feel resentful and say, I don't think this is what Christianity is all about. Mm. Do you have to perform? And then I think, well, I'd better perform anyway. Mm. <laughs> and then you get, you're not yourself anymore. Yeah. Because, and that's not good. People make you feel these things and they're negative. You can have feelings, they're negative feelings towards that other person instead of being in control of our emotion. We might even love that other person. And there are many people that I know that, that love somebody who makes them feel lousy. <laughs> well, a lot of marriages are a like that. A lot of marriages are like that. And they need them in their life. But their actions can be destructive to the relationship. And that's why with parents, we were talking in the last commandment about fathers not provoking the children to, be, to getting angry, you know, letting those roadblocks occur. But also fathers have to model this as well, not to get angry themselves with the kids. And the kids will see, oh, well, anger's okay. Dad's always angry or mum's always angry. That's something we've got to watch too. Remember the scripture that we kicked off with? Jesus says, I'm not talking about just killing. I'm talking about don't be angry without cause. Mm. Now we need to cover that mm. because there's sometimes cause mm. to be I was angry. going to ask you about that. Yeah, does I that, thought you would. Yeah, does that... <laughs> Does that mean that we're never allowed to retaliate if somebody does something well, to us? that comes into it. If there's a cause, like for, if, the, if there is a, a noble cause, there is room for getting angry. But getting back to the parents and child, I don't think being annoyed with a kid is cause for anger. A lot of parents will disagree because emotional control comes in. But there are better ways to get over your annoyance with a child because of what they do or what they don't do, other than model anger to them. Because then they will say, right, everybody's going to get angry with me. And then they get stuck in an attitude of retaliation, mm. like you're just mm. saying. Jesus got angry mm. with the money changes That's in the right. temple. He had cause because he was protecting something special and sacred, his father's house. That is cause. And so, well, if I find a good cause, I can get angry about it. Yes and no. This is what it means by wrath. The wrath of Jesus came upon the money changers because he was protecting something sacred, something that was his father's against harmful, evil things. If you see a mother bear with a cub, somebody comes up to take that cub or to do it harm, she'll get angry. Mm. That's not personal. Mm. <laughs> She's protectively angry against anybody doing harm to her treasure. Mm. That's God with us. Mm. God is angry. It says God's wrath is revealed against those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They're not aligned with him. They don't respect you know, his relational values and his love and care and so on. His wrath comes upon, his anger comes against people who do damage to his treasure, which is his children, his family, the people that he wants to nurture. I mean, it's, it means all of us. God is on the watch for people who are trying to destroy that plan of God to bring people into reconciliation and into response to him. And his wrath comes upon that. Mm. So it's legitimate. It's, so, it's like uh, you asked me once before about jealousy. Why does God get jealous? It was an aggressive part of his love. This is another one. So it's not a personal retaliation. So are we never allowed to retaliate? We are not allowed to take vengeance into our own hands. Now, protecting the innocent is not vengeance. Jesus lived and preached non-retaliation. His whole life was a testament of the principle of non-retaliation. Now we're getting into the weeds of the things that Jesus says to us to do as if he's just having a conversation and we realise that what is just said is absolutely impossible. Like if somebody slaps you on the face, turn the other cheek, 
That is non-retaliation. You say, no thanks, Lord. <laughs> so we're getting into this, but Jesus said it. There's a scripture in 1 Peter where it says, when he was insulted, he didn't insult back. He left his father to judge in it. So he was able to do this because he knew that he had somebody looking after him who was innocent. He knew that the wrathful dad, his father, would sort out the harmful, evil person that's insulting him, the innocent son. Now, he knew all of that. He just had it in him. We but don't have it even, in it. Even then, when he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Yes, that's because right. Because he knew the Father... That was his role. Exactly. To protect yeah. him. And he was saying, please forgive them. Yeah, that's it. So he left the judgment into his father's hands. But his plea was, like I said, forgive them. That's mm. what I'm here for, Father, isn't it? Mm. Isn't this why you sent me? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son. He spoke strongly against retaliation between us and one another. And anybody, not just people in church, but he, he talks to people in church, you're not allowed to judge one another. And we're also got to be non-retaliatory to anybody in the world, our neighbours. There's a good scripture, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus brings it up again in the same time, the same Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. In other words, don't retaliate the impossible commandment but whoever slaps you on your right cheek turn the other to him also and then he goes on to say you've heard that it was said you will you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies bless those that curse you do good to those that hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you now jesus was coming from a place where he was the agent on the earth, the only one on the planet that was able to do that at the time. And he lived it. And he knew that that's what the Father wanted. And he knew that that was the answer for people to be able to live in peace with one another. But somebody's got to do it. So he did it and got killed for it. And then he says to us, okay, it's in your hands, you take over. So that's transformation. There's a lot to get done, isn't there? And that's mm. the Holy Spirit's work mm. to get us into this arena maybe just on the fringes of it. And you have to try it out in little things. You have to say, oh, I know what I could say to you, or I know just the right email to send to you. You say, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to put this into God's hands. Mm. Or I'm going to word this. Maybe there is a correction I need to bring to somebody, but I'm going to word it into it's not vengeance, it's not retaliation. It could be helpful criticism. Mm. I mean, genuinely from your heart. So we can learn to do it. And you know what? There's a peace that flows from the life, there's a power that starts to hit the atmosphere when that sort of thing starts happening. Until you reach that point, that attitude can consume somebody's whole life. Yeah. And the tentacles go out into every aspect of their life, don't they? They do. It, it, it's, like a, it's like taking a, a poison, like self-administered poison, and it just poisons everything. Look, that is a good word. They create a toxic atmosphere mm. and they isolate themselves resentment and vengeance and their thinking of how to get back and, and that's such a sickness and it can be healed of course but yes so much of that in telling us not to retaliate to love our enemies and so on he's not saying that we can't protect ourselves from destruction from being destroyed self-defense is all right and protecting the innocent even the laws of the land allow self-defense but they don't allow retaliation that's their domain and Jesus said, vengeance is mine. And he's given it to the state to organise in many ways. But if, if I was to stop a thief or a murderer in the act of a crime, say in my house, and cause him bodily harm and trying to restrain him, even if he died, then I would be judged by both the state and by God as acting in self-defence, if, if that was genuine. If I had to stop the guy. That's not retaliation. And it's not even an eye for an eye. And it's not sinning against turning the other cheek. You don't say, oh, yes, you'd like to take my goods here. You're a thief, are you? Good, yeah. smack, bang. No. Yeah, here's my car keys. Take yeah, them that's right. Take the... No, irresponsible, stupid. You can walk the extra mile with somebody if you know they're in need, but not a thief who comes to rob your house. <laughs> It'd be retaliation and sinning against turning the other cheek and everything. If you chase the guy up the street, tackle him, 
smack him over the head with a brick and kill him out of a motive of revenge and retaliation, you'd go to jail. We're not allowed to take the law into our own hands. And that's what the, the state has given authority by God to do that. And we saw that in Romans chapter 13, I think, in the, in the last commandment. Mm. We did it. But the eye for an eye, that is out of Leviticus 24, isn't it? Um, but isn't that retaliation? Isn't that what the Bible teaches us to do? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Yeah, Jesus, he never abrogated that law. He didn't say, forget about an eye for an eye. He, he did use it and compare it and say, you know, you say an eye for an eye, but, but he's saying, I want to go further than that. But he's not saying, he's not knocking an eye for an eye. What he is knocking, though, is the way that that commandment, an eye for an eye, had become abused. He's talking in that scripture that we did right at the beginning about bring your gifts to the altar and the eye for an eye and forgiveness and reconciliation. He's there, he's highlighting the law of love and justice, right? Be fair, and be caring and loving. But when he talks about an eye for an eye, at the same time, he's trying to make an adjustment to their corrupt interpretation in their legalism as scribes and Pharisees in their own scriptures, because that was written back in Leviticus not to demand retaliation for an eye for an eye. It's not like, do you think he might have grabbed this from you? Do you think he might have taken Will you go and take his? No, it was, let's be fair. If it was an eye, well, then it's an eye you, you owe back. I mean, it's just figurative. It's like if it was an ox, well, you give an, if he took an ox or you heard his ox, you give him a good ox back. But what people would do and it became those that were had influence and, and wealth and, and power, they would say, well, okay, yeah, but I'm, I'm just going to get a second opinion here. Um, th that ox that you killed, that was a prize ox and could do this, and, and you inflate it, you lawyer up, and you get your lawyer, and you say, you owe me 20 oxes, and you're going to be paying so much tax to me you know, for the next five years. People who it's had... an opportunity to make a profit. Absolutely. And they use this eye for an eye thing Barely. It just got way out of hand, if they had the influence to do it. And this is what Jesus said to them. He used to say to these scribes and Pharisees, you tithe your little bits of mint and, and your special ingredients and you make sure you give a tenth of this and a tenth of that. But the true issues of mercy and justice, you've forgotten. You do the little things and look correct, but your agendas haven't disappeared. When you get the opportunities, you've got no mercy and you don't show any justice. It's not an eye for an eye for you anymore. It was a retaliation and oppression. Mm. So you're just exposing something, yeah. Mm. One of the biggest issues in relationships is when somebody causes offence to somebody else and that can really sever a relationship. And sometimes it takes years, if ever, to, to be healed. So what guidelines does the Bible give us to um, handle offences and when we're offended or if, if we've offended someone else? Yeah, God's put it there. It's in the Bible how to manage it because he knew that people will become offended at one another. He, and we, we know that and it's so easy to get offended. And he knew that that would be the way fights and wars would start, the whole planet because of offence. And a person gets offended if they don't see the behaviour or get the treatment that they expect from someone else. It's as simple as that. And the point is they might have wrong expectations, but they still get offended. So a lot of people can get offended and I could offend someone and not even realise it. Precisely. And it's going to happen. And that can stay hidden. And there could be people out there, Scott, <laughs> That are offended. I'm sure a lot of people have been offended <laughs> by me over the years. <laughs> but you haven't done anything. Mm. But you didn't do something the way they might no, have wanted. No, sometimes I did something. But <laughs> okay. I'm sure there are other times when I didn't mean to do something that caused offence. <laughs> yeah, well, it could be a 50-50 life. So it's, it's, it's just more than just disappointment because a disappointment can be because of wrong expectations. So... The shoe could be on the other foot. It could be their fault, not yours. And in fact, that's what happened with Jesus. People got offended at Jesus. He didn't do anything to offend them, but they expected him to do other things. And he didn't do what they expected. Lots of things. And that wasn't his fault. One classic example is his own cousin, John the Baptist. 
And John the Baptist was there. He introduced Jesus to the crowds and baptized him in the river and said, you know, this is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Listen to him and so on. John and, and Jesus like became a team. John was blowing the trumpet for Jesus mm -hmm. to come. And then John gets put into jail. He's rotting away in jail and Jesus is out there preaching and people gathering. In Matthew chapter 11, there's an account of the incident and he's in prison and he hears about Jesus doing the miracles and he sent two of his disciples out. And the point is he shouldn't have even had any more disciples. He should have handed them over, <laughs> probably. But he sends disciples out and he says, ask Jesus, are you, are you the coming one? Like, are you the, the one we're waiting for? Or should we look for another? There was something wrong with John. And Jesus answered and said to him, you go and tell John the things that you see and hear. Now, Jesus actually starts quoting a scripture from Isaiah 61 here. Mm -hmm. And he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he finishes off by saying to the two disciples, tell John, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, the trick in that is, if you look at it closely, Part of that Isaiah scripture also says, and I've set the prisoners free. Jeez, Jesus conveniently left that out. <laughs> that was the bit that John was hoping he would quote. <laughs> well, John was a prophet. He, he was waiting. <laughs> so the expectation from the prophet, and he knew that Jesus, the Messiah, he knew what he'd been sent to do. And Jesus had quoted, but he left out the the part that he wanted to hear, just as you say. So he was offended. But, but that wasn't God's will for John. So, you know, that's, that's life. Well, um, I think, Paul, also healing of the blind was actually a sign of the Messiah too, wasn't it? So oh, he was saying yeah. by saying, I, I'm healing, because prior to that, nobody, no blind people had been healed ever. Okay, and that was yeah. the first incident of blind people being healed. And that was another indication that he was the Messiah. That's good, yeah, yeah, it's to open people's eyes, like the metaphor of opening people's eyes as well, I suppose. And he was the first one. Yeah, that's, mm. that's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in this. So suspicion and mistrust come easily, don't they? Mm. Should we look for another Messiah? The church actually has got authority in this situation. Remember last week we talked about, in the fifth commandment, about the state's authority. And I went into quite a bit of detail about the magistrates and, and the different the law and also about school teachers and, and parents all having authority. And then I said in the church, but I didn't say anything about what the church's authority was, just to say that the church and state are under the authority of God and they don't have to compete. But the big role of the church's authority is protecting relational integrity because of offences. In fact, what the church categorises and classifies as in need of church discipline is people not forgiving one another and reconciling. There can be a lot of unforgiveness within churches. Absolutely. And if it gets left unreconciled and just gets hidden, the offence gets so bad that people just have to walk away. And they walk away with the resentment. But the church is, is the exact place, the precise place where you can bring about the principles of reconciliation because the word of God is there. Mm. Now, you can't always make it happen. You can't order somebody. You've got to forgive that person, but at least you can challenge them. The scripture says in uh, Matthew, if somebody has an offence against another, or if, if somebody is offended with you, then you go to that person one-on-one -on -one and you say, can we talk this out? And it says that you may gain your brother, not that you may justify your side of the argument. A lot of people think, yeah, let's do some reconciliation. I'll show them. <laughs> I was the one in the right. I'll reconcile them to my point of view. <laughs> exactly. That's it. So you've got to get this vulnerability thing happening where you say, look, do you want to do this God's way? Are you willing to listen to the other person's feelings? Because that's what it's all about. If you can just listen to them and win your brother by their thinking, this person actually wants to hear me. Okay. And then they can talk about their feelings. Then there's a way that two people can 
accept one another in their imperfection. Remember, we're talking about acceptance here. Yeah, all right, so you're not perfect. Yeah, okay, and I did that. I've seen it work. I've had two businessmen sit in front of me talking about high-profile business deals way above my head. I am not a good businessman. But I could hear the arguments like I thought, I might have to get a Philadelphia lawyer in here to sort this out. It was just too much. And I said to one of them, let's call them Joe and Bill. I said, Joe, can you just sit and listen to Bill talk for a while? Because you want to hear what he's saying. He's quite emotional about this. And I don't think he's accusing you of being nasty. He just doesn't think you understand what his need was, what he's going through. And I could see the impatience, but it started to click. They started to listen to one another. We all ended up crying in the room. Mm. You know, these guys, they, they got there. And, and they became friends. And they could see that I was moved by it because they were good guys and they didn't deserve to have to go to war against one another. But it took time just listening. So that's the first response to the discipline of the authority in the church. Now, the discipline, if, if those two guys would not have reconciled and the grace of God was there, I would have had to have taken step two. What's step two? Step two is you get the elders of the church. You say, hey, fellas, we're going to sit here like a little jury, not to judge them, but to help them and to do whatever we have to do, whether it's good cop, bad cop, whatever you do to open up a person's honesty and vulnerability and reality to be a human being and to listen so that it's not going to be somebody making a point without others that have got wisdom being able to evaluate and say, but hang on, wait a minute, I want to hear that again. And and it's almost like you give the person a chance to be assessed in what they're saying. Otherwise, you've just got one person's opinion. And if they're a powerful, they're a more uh, influential or powerful kind of a person in their personality, they could win just by, my, I could have been conned. But the fact is it didn't work out. I didn't get conned because they got together. But if I thought, yeah, this bloke's in the wrong, and I said, oh, you've got to pay him the money, I might be wrong. But because there wasn't reconciliation, I got others... I could have got others in and they would have helped. And then if after that, there's still no reconciliation, it says that the one who didn't reconcile, who didn't want to listen, who was angry and vengeful and wanted to take vengeance, you just say, uh, you're, going to have to, you're going to have to be set aside. You can't just presume the privilege of carrying on as normal in this church family if you refuse to be reconciled. If you refuse to be well, what do you do? You can't put him in jail. But now you say, you've got to have counselling. We just need to talk you through. We don't want to punish you, but you can't just presume things because there's something here. This is hard work. Mm. If he's got an issue with one particular situation, he's probably got bigger issues. Yeah, that's right. Now, can you imagine if the church took that seriously? Mm. You'd have a whole lot of healing happening. It'd be a lot of work. Or you'd have a very small church. (laughs) You'd have a small church. Because the option is you can walk out. Mm. These days where there's multiple churches where people are living, then it's very easy for people just to chop and change churches. And once, if they get offended, they just move to the next one and move to the next one and move to the next one. Yeah, it's true. Jesus spoke about authority in the church or to his disciples. And he said, let him who is going to be great among you. In other words, let him who's going to have any influence become your servant. This doesn't just apply to the church. This applies in the corporate world or anybody. If anybody who's going to be the leader or be successful or manage something, if they don't have an attitude of serving the people, they're not really contributing to the very thing they're trying to give life to. They're killing their own business by dominating other people, putting them into fear and intimidating them. Servant leadership is the only real true way for authority to come out. Otherwise, you get totalitarian stuff or whatever. So when you see a bit of humility in a, a leader, it's a comforting thing. You can think, well, this guy's willing to listen. I saw that in our prime minister recently. He's willing to listen to other people. I thought, good leadership. He's got authority. Um, he's, he's, it looks like he's wanting to serve us. And you can pick it. Mm. Yeah. Well, Paul, what are some of our defence mechanisms and how effective are they? Well, as far as our physical bodies are concerned... They are incredibly effective. As far as our emotions are concerned, they're hopeless. 
Like for our physical body, we can survive against physical threat, like a bus is coming. And you just, you got your foot off the curb and you're a goner. God's created within us this network, built-in biological defense mechanism. There's adrenaline, the neurons fire, the muscles tense. You get this super energy, your foot leaps back. You condense time, you know, into nanoseconds and you move out of the way and you don't even know you're doing it. It's called the autonomous nervous system reaction. Fight or flight. Fight or flight, exactly. Now that's built in. You can do that, say, once every six weeks and you go home and I need a bit of a break. But if you were doing that 10 times a day, you would be a wreck. Mm. Any kind of overuse of our defense mechanisms, physical or emotional, causes fatigue. And so that's why people need R&R when they're in the war and they're going through this physical threat. And, And they really need help. The society is waking up to this more and more now because when you're being physically threatened all the time, your nervous system just needs, it needs a lot of help. But when we get to our emotional threat, there is no built-in biological defense mechanism. God hasn't given us one. There isn't this beautiful tranquilizer that your body just releases when you get emotionally, you feel rejected. It's just not there. Not unless you take something for it. (laughs) That's right. And and that's effective. In fact, I, I see people taking the right medications for the right reasons and I see good results. Because you're a chemist, aren't you? Yes, I'm a chemist. What this emotional response or defence mechanism depends upon is the spiritual dimension of our life, and that is God. He is our defence in that area. Well, the body can give us the antibodies and the uh, hormonal feedback systems which save us, but this emotion when it is threatened by, say, rejection or disapproval or criticism or another hurtful thing, has to outwork itself in trusting God to defend us in the final outcome of that. I can say that in one sentence, but that involves a lot of steps of faith and trust. But we have a safe place to go to, and we need to learn to go to that when we get hurt when we are feeling emotionally threatened, we've got to know that we're loved by God. He will listen to us. He will lead us, provide wisdom. He said it to Abraham back in Genesis 15. He said, don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now, Abraham didn't trust God totally for that. He would defend himself. He told lies. He told Pharaoh that his wife was actually his sister. It was a half-truth. Yeah. But he learned that the safe place to go was to God because God said it to him. I use that scripture myself. I say, thank you, Lord. You're my shield and my exceeding great reward. I just realize it, make it real. In Psalm 94, David says, the Lord has been my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge. And that scripture I mentioned before about Jesus when he was insulted, this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So you've got to know what the payoff is going to be. It takes time. It's not instant. You might go through mistreatment, and what do you do? Well, you're suffering emotionally, but you learn by faith to access that grace and say, wow, you're going to judge justly. I have an expectation and you'll have to wait. But God somehow gets the message through that it's okay. You're not a victim here. Yeah, you're a target, but you're not a victim. A lot of people are targets, but too many people that get targeted all of a sudden identify themselves as victims and they get a victim mentality. Not good. But Jesus did that. Why? How could Jesus do that? He had a relationship with his dad. This is the fifth commandment again. My dad's going to sort you out. (laughs) So we're offered that as our ultimate defense and everything. I mean, the the just shall live by faith. You've got to get there somehow. God's got a thousand ways to get you into trusting him. Mm. This is an upfront one. But people can build their own self-defense mechanisms, can't they? They can be relational or emotional defence mechanisms. What about those? Yeah, well, they can do good and they can do harm. 
Some of the, the, the subtle and negative defence mechanisms are ones that we use as sort of weapons against other people, like we withdraw from them. Are you doing that to me? Well, I'm just going to disappear and uh, ghost you. As the kids say, you're going to be ghosted. You're not going to get any texts from me. That's withdrawal. Or there's resistance. If you want me to do something, I'm going to be resistant, either passive, aggressive resistance, or I'm going to muck it up. You want me to work that for you? Yes, I'll do it, and I'll make a mess of it, and then you might treat me a little bit better. It's a defence mechanism. It's retaliation, and or get aggressive. You know, you yell and shout. You think, they don't work. Well, the, the strange thing is when the person does it, they feel like it's working, but it's punishing themselves, so they don't work. You can't go into a shell and say, I just feel misunderstood. You can't just resist and get oversensitive and just isolate yourself. And you can't just get aggressive because you blind yourself then to the feelings of another person. And this commandment, do not kill, is all about preserving relationships. So our defence mechanisms can subtly work very uh, efficiently for five minutes, but then you're stuck with the residue of that. And it's a toxic thing again. You know what you do when you, you use these defences? You damage the relationship. Then you want the relationship back. And it can be too late. Mm. Especially if you develop a pattern of self-defence mechanisms. Now, there was a good story in Second Samuel about David. We talk about him trusting God, you know, and Abraham. He was riding home one day and he had his team with him, his gang. And there's this fellow called Shimei, who was a relative of Saul, which was the king that God deposed, put down and put David in his place. And he really had something against David, you can imagine, he had a grudge. And he cursed David as he rode along and threw stones at him from a hillside. And he said, you're a murderous man. And David's companions, you know, they were his loyal companions. They said, let's take off this man's head, defence mechanism. We're here to defend you, David. You think David would have said, yeah, well, okay, guys, thank you. You are my defence. Because they said, why should this dead dog curse the king? David showed emotional restraint. He showed meekness. And he said to his men, if God has sent this man to tell me what I'm really like, then I can't destroy him for that. And on the other hand, if God has not sent him, then God will deal with the matter and even repay me good for this man's cursing of me today. Now, wow, that's trusting God. But he really thought that through. But what I like is that attitude of, well, maybe even though this guy is off his head, there's a message for me in something he's saying, and quite often there is. And you've got to think, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe he's got something there. I'd better cool it. No good retaliating. And if he's wrong, God, you'll sort it out anyway. So these are things to be developed. So the Bible shows us that we can trust in God like you've explained. So what are some of the consequences of getting trapped into using our own particular flavour of defence mechanisms? Because, you know, we all have our favourite defence mechanisms, don't we? So, yeah. But there are consequences to using those. Yeah, that's right. And just like I was talking about stepping off the curb in front of a bus, if you had to do that 10 times a day, you'd have to go and have R&R, &R, right, because of the fatigue. It's the same with our defence mechanism. When we overuse our defence mechanisms, whatever they might be, we become emotionally fatigued. We've used up all our own reserves, and to no real effect anyway. But that can also trigger defence mechanisms in other people, and they get fatigued as well. Yeah, got it. Yeah, that's good. So you've got the Mexican standoff thing happening. So everybody gets fatigued. <laughs> the whole workplace mm. is in emotional fatigue. That can happen. Mm. But look, anything that gets overused gets fatigued, even metal. I've heard engineers talk about, oh, there's fatigue in that metal. <laughs> I'm thinking, You're what's looking at it, you can't see anything. <laughs> That's right. But they know it can snap. Yeah, like us, we can snap or break or fracture. And that's like a fractured soul. It's like an emotional downward spiral. It just gradually goes down. The default human condition in us as human beings is to defend ourselves against the difficulties of life. And behind that downward emotional spiral, which is like a feeling of oppression or sometimes it can feel like being depressed, there's an accumulation of anxieties, 
regrets, wrong expectations, situations that led to disappointments. They're just sitting there. People can get counselling and be given a new perspective, which I think is very effective, rather than hit the medication straight away. Because that situation, that emotional fatigue and sort of depression, you can arrest that downward spiral at a certain point so they don't hit rock bottom and have what used to be called a breakdown. You know what a breakdown really is? It's God's way of saying, now you're going to have a rest, okay? Enforced now rest. you can have a really enforced rest, right? Like our whole planet's in an enforced rest at the moment with this coronavirus thing. It's having a, a meltdown, a breakdown, but... The accumulation of everything there in a person can be arrested when a person gets a new perspective. You say, hey, hang on, where am I here? I've got a distorted sense of who I really am. I'm kind of coming from this negative place of I have not got this and I am not this. I thought I was better than this. And there's this negative self-talk. We do ourselves a lot of damage. Somebody needs to help us to see it, get a perspective. Now, hang on, take a good look at yourself. Now, that can arrest the downward spiral. So can medication. The spiritual reality is we're a new creation in God through Jesus. Now, if we can stop and think and know, and that's why I get people to wait on God, get the whole of the scripture, like the one in Ephesians chapter four that says, put off your old default mode. It actually says, put off the old man, the old person that whose default mode is defending themselves and getting, it says, which has grown corrupt or it's not working because of its wrong desires of the heart. It's become broken and it's not working anymore. Put that off. Get renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, get a new perspective and put on the new creation that is you and Jesus together, which has been created in God in holiness and true righteousness, alignment with God. So there's your process again. So uncreated in Jesus becomes created, joined to us, the new creation. Now we've got a new process of emotional repair. It's not our defense mechanism. It is God defending us. The Holy Spirit is the one who starts to bring truth to us and says, you don't have to just try and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and defend yourself. You're not just going to try and make yourself a better human being. You can become the real spiritual being that God created you to be. You can be the person you were created to be. And I tell people to sit there and tell themselves that. I am a new creation. I am, at this moment, loved and accepted by God, warts and all. I don't deserve it. And he wants to have me to be at rest, to show me what he's doing. And that rest is an emotional rest, which is the healing part of it. And it's a new sense of well-being that the Holy Spirit can bring us into. And you sit, wait on God, accept the truth. It is well with my soul. But that's not the end of it. You don't just say, well, I've hit the plateau. Now I'm, I'm right. I've had the rest. Okay, back to work. No, now you start to do the upward spiral. You start to then look at your fellow man, your brothers and sisters, and you say, I've got something in here now that I can give. And you start to contribute to the world around you. And that's your real healing. That is your transformation. That's waiting for every single person in the earth to experience. Because I tell you what, it's waiting for us every morning when we wake up. Who are you? What are you going to be today? What person, what perspective are you going to take on life? Is it all negative, bad, complaining? Or are you this person that's got this power within you? The Bible says we have it. So that's the renewing of your mind. It shows you who you are. That's the grace of God. Yeah. Mm. If we're going to experience transformation from defensiveness into true care and compassion, then what is the main aspect of repentance and character that has to occur? Okay, then to do what I just said. Okay. Well, the real change in mind and heart is the willingness to become vulnerable. Jesus was the most vulnerable person in the earth, the most powerful person and the most vulnerable. He didn't have to prove he was right. He just was right. And he used to say things, but he didn't fight for his rights. Okay. And you don't have to win to be in control. And you don't have to be right in order to feel like you are worthwhile as a person. Now, that's so hard to lay down. It's that's scary step, for people. It is scary. 
In fact, it's one of the scariest things to do, especially for somebody that you think is kind of, can be strong and strong opinions and uh, accomplished. You can say to yourself, I'm not perfect. And it's no point in me trying to win this and get myself more fatigued. You either win the battle or you win the relationship. You either eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because you might have a good argument and you know that you can win this with smart facts or you eat from the tree of life, which means you experience death and resurrection. Mm. And that's your choice. Well, basically what I'm saying is you take the cross. Who's first to take the cross here? Not me. Okay, well, you can wait for transformation for some other time. Anybody? Yeah, I'll, I'll embrace the cross here. I'll be vulnerable. Right. Real good chance that you're going to have a good day because you're going to get resurrection as well. And Holy Spirit is there leading us into it. So you listen to what that other person feels. You might even know that you're more logically right, but you learn to listen to the heart. You know what happens when you learn to hear what another person is feeling? the confusion, the pain or the shame. You can say, what have I done? How did you feel when I did that? And you really hear, they can even be quite emotional, say, this is the way you made me feel, and you listen to it, you actually start to identify, and you realise, gee, I have felt like that too. That's real contact. That's reconciliation starting to happen. Now, Jesus knew how to hear a heart. Sometimes he would just stay silent and he'd listen. But he identified with everybody because he was the man of sorrows. He knew what they were going through. And he would listen and say, yeah, tell us, tell us, okay, spit it out. Sometimes he'd speak, but he wasn't just listening to the words. He was listening to what was behind the words in the feelings of the heart. He didn't retaliate, but he'd speak to that heart. Sometimes he'd speak correction, but he was coming from a loving place, identifying. He was always reconciling. And we started this whole thing off by saying, let's become reconcilers. But now we're getting into the area of now let's become caring and compassionate. And that's what this is. If we learn this, even in a small way, we will learn to not only hear what someone else's heart is saying, we will learn to hear God. In fact, I think if you don't know this way of listening to the hearts, I don't think you really know how to hear God properly. Mm. It goes back to leave your offering at the altar and go and reconcile. That's, a, that's good. Yeah, that was the first scripture we looked mm. at. Because he's in this. He wants to tell you his heart. Mm. There's not much better than that. Mm. So we started with do not kill. And we spent the whole time really talking about don't kill relationships, didn't we? Yes. And how people can be offended or cause offence and how that can be reconciled. Yeah. That's that's really the key message from all this, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, being reconciled. And then defence mechanisms and how they can, the consequences of those defence mechanisms yes. being in place yeah. and how we can relinquish that yes. through Christ. We can do that and that's that faith. And that's a repentance because we get a new mindset. We say, I've been trusting myself my whole life mm. to look after myself. Mm. I repent of that. I now see that God is my strength. Yeah. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Once you repent, you can have faith, mm. not and before. We are to repent and believe. And believe, yeah. Mm. In Mark, yep. That's good, yeah. All right, Paul. Well, this commandment links to commandment seven. Yeah. We're going to talk about that next week. Next I look week, forward yeah. to talking to you then. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Thanks, Paul. Okay, bye. Bye.